everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know what you believe, why you believe it, or where you're going in your journey of faith. You have other people with you in that journey, and it's a very honest thing and sometimes courageous and bold thing to say that you're not quite sure about your beliefs. And we want to be there with you as you do that as much as we can. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. It's going to be something we do every once in a while from time to time whenever one of these issues come forward. And it's it's an issue that one of us deals with more than the other. Uh, a theological issue, a theological idea. Something that happens either in our past or present or our future, uh, or not our future, but as we're developing, we're thinking about our future. In this case. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you love those puns. Uh. (laughs) Uh, And today what we're going to be talking about is we're going to talk about end times. We're going to talk about end times theology and the impact that that had for Ryan, because Ryan is in a tradition that talks about that quite a bit. And so we're going to listen to him for the duration of this podcast. Uh, But I do want to start out by briefly just telling you where I am with this, just so that it gets out of the way. Um, Many of my Lutheran brothers and sisters will know this is where we are with it. Uh, When it comes to the end times, we functionally believe that it started when Jesus went back into heaven. It's something that eschatologically is called amillennialism, which means that there is no millennial um, or millennium. And it all started when Jesus went back to heaven. He gave the promise that he would come back. And we're just in this time that is called the era of the church, the era of post-Jesus. And that entire time is a time that we would label end times. So, you know, I'd spent maybe a minute talking about it. There's probably a little bit more depth to that, of course, because I'm not a scholar in this area or even a reader in this area. But by and large, Lutherans don't spend much time in uh, end times discussions. So it's really important that we listen to people who have, because that's part of the journey that they have, part of their life. And so... Since I've explained what we believe briefly as Lutherans, uh, and frankly, I just got to say, we're not really all that interested in it, by and large, um, because of the way that our theology is. It's just like, okay, well, Jesus will come back. Let's worry about what we got to do until then. Um, But that's not the case for your tradition and your upbringing. So let's start with that very basic question that we always do. It's a definition question. When you were growing up, and maybe even now, what is end times theology, end times understanding of scripture? What is that for you? So this actually, it might shock you Lutheran friends to hear, there's actually a lot to this. And I had to really think about how to uh, explain it even, because it's going to be not just you guys, I imagine it's going to be foreign to some. Although I would say that this is clearly or definitely not unique to Pentecostals. Um, variations of this stuff is going to be found in Baptist faith and I mean, all over the place. Um, So bear in mind, it's not a monolithic thing, even within these groups. So I'm just going to talk about 
what I learned and the perspective I had on it within like, you know, my church and family and education and such. Yeah. Isn't there like five different views of the millennium or something? Oh, there's at least three, you know, (laughs) well, no four, if you count. Yeah, there's four, there might be five, but there's quite a few. Um, Well, we might be the fifth. (laughs) I think there's like, there's pre mid post, you know, anyway, doesn't matter. We'll get there. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so I think the the, the place to start um, to understand what was going on with this is most of it comes from specifically the apocalyptic parts of scripture. And that almost entirely is in the book of Revelation. It's the one that uh, people often skip because it's either, you know, it's kind of crazy. And also for us, it was kind of scary, you know, because I mean, there's like half the planet getting killed by avenging angels and, you know, weird (laughs) bowls of wrath being poured out and the water on the earth evaporating and dragons and prostitutes. And I mean, it's just a wild ride, right? Yeah. Um, But what, uh, what it is, or what it was for me and, and lots of us in this world is that Revelation is not only a document about something that happened in the past. So as I understand it, many uh, millennial types or people who don't take this view on the end times see the book of Revelation as solely or almost entirely having to do with Roman persecutions. And John wrote uh, his visions or this letter about what was going on in Rome um, in a way to encourage them. And it was an apocalyptic letter, and that was used to do that kind of thing, and it was very common. But for us, the difference is, I don't think anybody that I heard ever denied that it had to do with that. You know, it certainly was the context, and um, it certainly does, I think, refer to things that happened, you know. But what was certainly given the most attention and the focus of it for us was that it actually is uh, a document about the future. So it's a prophetic thing that's talking about what will happen at the end of all things, right? It's its focus for us was not so much on what happened in Rome, except to maybe try and unlock what was going on in some of the fantastic imagery in the book. But it's about what will happen, um, you know, leading up to uh, Armageddon, the tribulation, the, um, and we'll talk about these things, uh, the millennium and the final defeat of Satan and all of those things at the end, um, the final judgment, etc. So that's the important part to get is that it's mostly a future thing. It's focusing on what we believe will happen um, at the end. And in order for this to work, you kind of have to take that approach to Revelation. Um because that's generally where most of it comes. Like a big part of this is a belief in a rapture, which is um, a word that's not in the Bible, right? The Bible doesn't even, um, like it doesn't even really talk about that in those words. But you come up with that idea when you take this specific approach to interpreting the events of Revelation in a future dimension. So, yeah. Um, Let's... As someone who's not into this world very much, I think it would be helpful to kind of walk through it very chronologically as well as we can. So let's let's start from the very beginning of today, right now, whenever we're listening to it, if the rapture hasn't already happened and someone's actually going to listen to this, I don't know, that's a terrible joke. Um, let's say we're going along with our lives 
Maybe that's too early or too late of a starting stop point. So you can say that. But what's the next thing that happens in this end times theology? In terms of like, do you mean what's the rapture like or what happens after the rapture takes place? Well, is that the next thing? So the next thing would be the rapture, like daily life as it is right now is normal. And then the idea is you don't know when it's going to happen. That's a very important part of it. In fact, Um, in the night type stuff in the night there. I remember, you know, the parable of the 10 virgins and five were ready and five were that much. I do know. Yeah. So that was often used as a way to talk about be ready for the rapture because the the important part of this idea was if you were not right with God, if you had, if you were not following Jesus, if you were backslidden or whatever word you want to use when the rapture took place, then Jesus isn't taking you with him and you're stuck on earth for all of the terrible things that are about to happen in um, that, that take place during the great tribulation, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's Um, really interesting because I know they're going to hate this and maybe you cringe a little bit too, but boy, that sounds a lot like Catholic confession, like medieval Catholic confession. Like if you're not able to confess your sins, then you're unclean and then you might go to purgatory type stuff, maybe even hell. Yeah, I mean, like, I will say that as a child, especially, I had untold number of rapture scares, right? I mean, here's the thing. It's kind of funny because I remember them describing the rapture like, you know, the skies are going to split, the trumpets are going to sound, the angels are going to, I don't know, yell or play the bagpipes or whatever they do. And, you know, (laughs) Jesus will descend and we'll all be gone. And so, like, it doesn't sound like something you'd really miss, right? It feels like if that's how it works, you're going to know when it happens. (laughs) Yeah. But even so, I... I, because I was so afraid of missing it, you know, and because I was always convinced I was uh, never going to make it because I was too sinful or too bad or too whatever it was, um, I would be convinced I somehow missed it. Like it happened and I didn't Uh know. And like I'd be home alone and I'd invent reasons to call my parents at work because if they were still here, I was probably okay, you know, because I remember thinking if mom didn't make it, we're all screwed kind of thing. Um, (laughs) You know, I'd come downstairs and see my brother there and I'd be like, well, I don't know. Is that, (laughs) you know, so, (laughs) so, um, yeah, I had lots of those, lots of those. And they were like, I remember they did this horrible like skit in kids church when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something, nine. And it was this person talking to her friends and she was telling them about Jesus and they weren't listening. They were making fun of her. Then all the lights go out and we were in this old building and upstairs there were no windows. So it was pitch black in there. Right. And they played a trumpet sound and then the lights came back on. And <laughs> oh my this, goodness. this woman, this person was gone and her clothes were on the ground because apparently that's what happens. You know, I guess we're all naked <laughs> in heaven. I don't know. Um, no, you get robes. That's right. Anyway, um, <laughs> like, that kind of stuff was there and like that terrified me because yeah. I was convinced that was what was going to happen. And then, you know, the tribulation was always described as this time of, well, tribulation, but not just like inconvenience, like um, kind of like how in the Roman persecutions you had, to, they had to um, either offer uh, sacrifice to the emperor or be, you know, killed or whatever it was the same thing that was going to happen except it would be to whoever the antichrist ended up being because remember that was going to be an actual person okay who was going to rule the one world government that would destroy the church and persecute any christians that were left and 
yada, yada, yada from there. Okay, let's pause for a second because before we get to the tribulation, uh, this is where the Left Behind series comes in, right? Correct. So I never read that because, um, well, partly because I was not wanting to spend more time with that because it was scary, but also because I heard that they were not very well written in terms of just as books, and I'm so I just didn't want to. But okay. yes, yeah, so the idea, as I understand it, behind that series is it's about people who missed the rapture and have been left behind. Okay. Uh, and so it goes through their under, well, the author's created understanding um, of uh, the tribulation. I think it, I, there's a lot of books. I, I think it goes all the way through Armageddon until the very end. Gotcha. Uh, I okay. think. I've never read them, but I'm, and I mean, there was even like a kid's version and like, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was, there was a movie. That's the thing that I remember. Yeah. I remember the whole experience. That's the only thing I remember of it because I wasn't into it either, but I remember who's the, whoever the actor is. um, Kirk Cameron. Yeah. Cameron. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the uh, previews, I guess, or whatever it was where he's looking around and nobody that he knew was there. That's like the image I have of the the rapture. And then, you know, it makes sense that it would be about the tribulation then. Right. Right. So the tribulation is going to happen. And it seems like, there is, since the Antichrist is a real person, is it a surprise that the Antichrist comes about? Or is it a something that you can track? Is it something that you have markers for what the Antichrist is doing up until the tribulation? Uh, how does that work for that? So that's an interesting question. Um, because I think you know, bear in mind also that this has never been a focus of my study either. So I'm just talking about my remembering of when we talked about it in school and my understanding of it all growing up. But um, I think the idea was that there is an antichrist in the world who would be doing things before this all happened, like setting up for stuff. So um, the idea being that like this, well, it would be a man, I'm sure in, you know, um, this man would um, in some way be scheming to rule the world, usually through, like I said, some kind of one world government. Um, sometimes people would talk about like uh, he would have to be able to claim Davidic ancestry because he would claim that he was the Messiah, you know, um, yeah. like, like a false Messiah, obviously. But like, so like actually Jesus Christ or the Messiah. I think the idea was that he'd be a counterfeit messiah, right? Um, but obviously that most of the world would fall sway and pledge okay. fealty to him, right? So it wasn't aimed at Christians necessarily, but some sort of fake messiah that would be attractive to others. Right, right. And so sometimes they'd talk about, like, I remember it was a real big deal when it was a long time ago that the Sanhedrin was created again in Israel, like in real life, you know, and it has no authority to do anything. But I remember people talking about it like, oh, so maybe, you know, like the idea that the Antichrist would bring peace to the Middle East kind of deal. Um, And through that, then, you know, basically rule the world and create this government that then um, usually had a cashless society. (laughs) You know, they were real scared of that. And there was, um, they talk about the mark of the beast, you know, Mm -hmm, so that was 
the some some way usually on six, your six, forehead. Six. Yeah, on yeah. your forehead or on your wrist or something. Hand, I think it says um, that would you'd have to take as a way to proclaim your allegiance to the Antichrist. You know. Okay. Um, and the idea was that of the people on the earth, because when this is happening, remember, for us, the Christians are gone, <laughs> the faithful Christians anyway, right. um, that that was an ultimate act. Like, I don't, there was no, I, I think there was no redemption if you did that. Um, and okay. that your lot was cast and you were destined for the lake of fire, <laughs> pretty much. So then um, the tribulation is a time where you can still be saved. See, that was never really clear. I think the idea was that if you get left behind and if you refuse to take the mark of the beast, that, you know, you would then be martyred, in which case you could still be saved. Right. Um, Again, people would say different things about that. But I think the idea was that was kind of your last chance and that it would be very hard to to do that um, because of concentration camps and torture and beheadings and take right. pick, you know, whatever it was. It would spell out death easily. Yeah. Yeah. If you refuse that, you would be, you know, yeah. Um, okay. So, so the Antichrist uh, comes, uh, makes himself, it kind of sounds like he rises up during uh, the period immediately after the rapture. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's this area of the tribulation that is basically ruled by him, mm-hmm. which is a nasty time to be alive. Would it be equatable to hell with people or is it like a light version of hell? So I think during the tribulation, if you have accepted the mark of the beast and served the Antichrist, it's actually going to be a fairly good time. For the people on earth okay in the sense that you know uh, i don't know if it would be literal peace in the middle east but that kind of stuff would happen as a way for the antichrist to cement his uh, messiahhood his fake messiahhood you know messiahship huh. whatever yeah. as a way to bamboozle everybody into thinking he's the real deal um i think at some point he is revealed for what he is and i think the idea was that anyone who's served him up to that point is not going to care and they're going to do it anyway because ultimately i think the idea was that people who do that um not they're not only lost but they are you know now in servants to both him and of course the devil right who he works for you know but like there were times when people thought that someone might have like, you know, I, I think there were people who thought Hitler might have been the Antichrist. Turns out okay. he wasn't. Right. But I mean, that's kind of the model that they would look at, because like strong leader brings country together, conquers things, makes things better for people. Well, you know, <laughs> not most people, but the people like, you know, that kind of model. I don't know that they said he would necessarily have conquered the world militarily, but like that kind of personality, some kind of strong figure that could unite the world in opposition to God. Okay. So is the Antichrist supernatural or is he just a man? Uh, no, he is supernatural in some way. Like I remember, um, and honestly, I think this is an interesting way to look at Revelation. I remember one of my my professors talking about how if you look at 
revelation as a whole and he wasn't really into much of this stuff either he we were it was more about like the story that you see in the crazy narrative of revelation and the idea that um you see the antichrist is the devil's uh, final way of trying to set himself up as being equal to God's, even okay. to the point of you have an unholy trinity of the devil, the antichrist and the beast, as opposed to the real trinity, right? Like this idea that like huh. the, the devil has then set himself up to be worshiped by humanity because he's taken over finally. Like this has been the devil's goal all along. So in that sense, I don't know if anyone ever said like, was the, was the antichrist like possessed by the devil? I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. Um, okay. At the very least he was a tool of Satan. Does he have a long life? Well, I mean, he does because if I remember correctly, so after the tribulation, right, the seven years, the devil and I think the Antichrist gets locked up for a thousand years, okay. right? which is the that's the millennium. That's when Jesus rules and and all of those who uh, who are, you know, with Jesus. So the Christians, the faithful um, uh, rule on earth, 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 earth for a thousand years. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's also good. And the restoration happens and this is a good time. But there's also this knowledge that at the end of the thousand years, all of the bad people are let out for the final battle of Armageddon that's described. Okay. So let's slow down. There's seven years of tribulation. Yep. Um, that pretty much kicks off after the rapture, mm -hmm. um, leads up to that, of course. And then there's a millennium. So then there's a millennium in this way of course because you know the different kinds of this end times theology it could be the millennium happens first or whatever right right this is just <laughs> my remembrance and understanding yeah uh, if any of my professors are listening to this it's possible that i've gotten some of this wrong <laughs> <laughs> and the millennium stands for a thousand years right right and it is a literal time period that actually takes place okay which, side note, that's why we were called premillennial, because we believed the rapture would happen before the millennium. Okay, so okay. premillennials before rapture, and or you, before millennium for rapture. You amillennial types are because you don't believe in a literal millennium in this sense. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah, we believe, I mean, what's it been? 2,000-some years, right? Right, right. Ish. Uh, yeah. yeah, so during the millennium... Jesus and Jesus rules on earth. Is that correct? Yes. Uh -huh. And does that mean everybody who is raptured comes back? You know, in whatever way that works. I, I don't, I don't know. It's not a resurrection at that time. You know, I honestly, even then was never entirely sure. Okay. I think, I think the resurrection happens at the last judgment. Cause doesn't it talk about, um, I'm trying to remember in Revelation, I think it talks about um, everyone being resurrected to be judged, you know? Okay. Um, so I think that takes place after the millennium. Can't huh. remember if it's okay. before or after Armageddon. <laughs> so then uh, during the millennium, it's basically whoever was alive during the last days, mm -hmm. they're the ones that rule on earth. Right. And I honestly can't remember the resur there might be a resurrection, you know, the dead in Christ um may have been resurrected. I honestly don't okay. remember where that fits so in the timeline. It could be in there. 
what's what's the millennium look like? What's that ruling look like? What's why a thousand years? What's going on during that time? You know, honestly, that was never a big focus for me. I think because I was probably fixated on the fear huh. of the rapture and the tribulation. But I think the idea is God's government on earth through Jesus Christ, right? I think the idea is it is pointing towards the order of things being restored to how it was supposed to be before the fall, right? Um, You know, this idea that um, I would say there's no more sin, except that there still is because they're all at the very least, there are all these people who are locked up waiting to get out, right? Okay. Um, But honestly, I don't I don't know. I don't remember that part very well. Um, And I don't know that that was because it wasn't talked about. I think I just was never my focus. Um, Because even then, the emphasis was on what comes after that, the final battle, you know, okay. Um, Well, then we won't spend much time on that. I think it's really interesting, like some questions are flooding to my mind. But um, well, it's it's telling that that uh, was not that that one that didn't really sink in for me much. Um, Yeah. It, it, Which we'll in, get to. In my mind, it was kind of like, if not at the very least, or maybe what it was, was a, a thousand year calm before the final storm. Yeah. Okay. So the millennium happens and whatever that looks like, whatever. Okay. So then there's this Armageddon, which is a literal battle. Right. And it talks about that near the end of Revelation. And it talks about, you know, Jesus is riding a white horse and the sword's coming out of his mouth. And um, it talks about all of us being in that battle with him. And this is the final battle against um, the devil, the antichrist, and those who follow them. Right. Um, And which it would seem like they're outnumbered if, if it works the way that you say, or at least the way I'm hearing it is those that were there during the time who were not Christians. Those are the ones fighting against the Christian army. Yeah. Well, and not just the, but I think also it's not just the people. I think the okay. idea is there are like angelic and demonic forces involved as well. Like this is the battle to end all battles, right? This is all of creation um, finally settling good and evil. So um, kind of like uh, Avengers Endgame, where it's like all those armies that are there that yeah. are faceless people, but then you got the superheroes that are helping right. out. Right. Yeah, sure. Like this idea is like... Um, this is not just a skirmish. This is like this is like D-Day on steroids, right? Like, I mean, this is this is the very final um, triumph of good over evil. Because the thing about it is, is that there's the outcome is not in doubt, right? The yeah. the idea is that um, we have you know we have the the war Christ on his giant white horse, <laughs> who yeah. has already won the battle against Satan, right? In the sense okay. of um, you know, this is this is more like, even though it's this titanic struggle, it's at the same time, like it's almost more of a mopping up action than like a bitter, huh. who knows what's going to happen here, you know. Um, so does that mean Christians can die during that battle? I don't know. I don't think so. And if so, I'm pretty sure the resurrection of everybody takes uh. after this because after this is when the final judgment takes place. Okay. So there's a big battle. We know how it's going to happen. Um, okay. And then there is the end of the battle. What happens at the end of the battle? 
So I believe it is at this point that the final judgment takes place. So every person, every soul, and even up to the devil and the Antichrist and the beast and all of that. Okay. Everyone is judged by God from the judgment seat, you know, the uh-huh. throne of God, and everyone is judged to have been be, have been faithful or not. And those who have been faithful um, are, you know, go to rule with Christ for eternity, you know, the reward, heaven, uh, whatever happens after this, if anything, you know, um, all of that. And those who aren't, this is where they get thrown in the lake of fire for eternity. So the devil, the beast, the antichrist, but also those who ultimately followed them to the end also are cast into the lake of fire forever. Um, I think it even talks about an angel locking him up with a key kind of thing, you know, or maybe that. But anyway, the point is that like after the judgment, that's it. That is the end. And you are either for God or I guess burning forever, you know? So there's no like nothing afterwards except for damnation and heaven. Yeah. Unless, you know, we don't know like what happens after that. Nobody really talked about it. Does God create something else? Like is who knows, right? Like we don't know, but that's basically that's the end of the story. Um, And that's when you talk about 20 chapter 20 and 21 about the new Jerusalem. Right. So um, everything has been restored. Evil has been defeated once and for all forever. Um, there's, you know, no more sin, no more sorrow and on and on from there. Okay. Uh, So what happens after that was never really talked about, um, if anything. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, it kind of sounds epic. Like it's, it is. is, Yeah. Yeah. Like like, a great epic that you might write in a book, you know, like Lord of the Rings or even Avengers Endgame where, So this big epic story. Yeah, I mean, like, um, in many ways, and the reason it's at the end of the Bible, right, is it is the end of the whole story. So the story started at the garden, right? And that's why even in 20 and 21, it's re- it's back to the garden, but this time it's restored to how it was. And I mean, mm-hmm. not, the, not Eden the place, but like the Edenic e- imagery of the New Jerusalem, right? The Tree of Life, the... Um, everything is back like how it was originally before sin entered the picture. So it is very much, it is the capstone to the story. It's what everything was driving towards because it's finally, there is, um, there's no doubt. There's no, like God has one once and for all, and we have two, right? It is very much the conclusion to the epic that is humanity. So is that why it's so attractive? Um, I think so. I think we all like to know the end of the story. And I think also um, there's a lot of reassurance that comes from the idea of no matter how evil things get, no matter how bad things get on the world or in your life, that God is ultimately victorious, right? And that you are too, um, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. And that's... I mean, so I can insert a little bit here. It seems to me that's what John or why John wrote Revelation is because, you know, our input on this whole story would be that Revelation was written for people suffering persecution or upcoming persecution by the Roman Empire. And so he's trying to give some hope to those people during that time that God will still prevail even when it doesn't look like it. Right. And that's that's what's going on here is that same principle 
um, has been used, but it's been catapulted forward to 3000 years or whatever it ends up being, you know, um, because the persecution that's described about the tribulation is like, I mean, there is the recognition that it, it will be like what happened then, but this one is going to be worse. Right. Um, yeah. So why do you think, why do you think, uh, you growing up in the church, when you grew up in the church, why do you think that was something that was being taught so heavily? Yeah, I, you know, I'm just theorizing here and, and, uh, it's interesting because my, there's a few reasons. One, I think this idea of the imminence of the end times has been part of Pentecostalism since the beginning. Okay, so this idea that Jesus was coming back at any moment um, was part of the DNA. I mean, there were people who went directly from the revival at Azusa Street, you know, which was kind of the genesis of Pentecostalism, at least in America. Uh And um, they went straight from there to somewhere around the world because they were going to preach the gospel because they needed everybody to know about Jesus because that's when all this will happen. Like the rapture will happen when everybody has heard the gospel doesn't they don't have to accept it but like it's almost this idea that god's at least giving everybody the chance <laughs> before the end starts taking place okay. um so like this idea that we have to get people saved we got to get the gospel preached in all corners of the earth has been something that's been there from the beginning um now it's interesting to note that that was more than 100 years ago so you know jesus didn't come back tomorrow for them but um that's part of why it's there. It's just, it's part of the DNA, you know? Okay. But I think in terms of my life, I I think the other important historical context to think about, and this is just my guess here, but I think it's not a coincidence that this became such a big deal and rose to such a fever pitch when people like my parents' age, um, and even their parents, um, were convinced the world would end at any time because they were in the middle of the Cold War, right? So they worried. I mean, they did duck and cover drills in school in case they got nuked, right? And the world ended. And um, I think perhaps what this kind of understanding of the end did was give people a way to cope with that existential dread that was there all the time because it, it kind of pointed to the idea that whatever happens with any of that, God is in control. And, you know, maybe it was if that's going to happen, Jesus is going to take us with him first. Or maybe it was, you know, something like that. Like, and I wonder too, like, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't exist anymore. It still does. But it definitely has kind of died down since when I was a young child. And I wonder in terms of how much it's focused on, I mean. And I wonder if that's because we don't live in that same existential um, fear and dread of the world ending at literally any minute. Um, I mean, yeah, or at um, least we're more normalized to it. Cause that's yeah. what I was thinking is it makes sense. Like everyone's had existential fears, right? Right. That's not new to the modern era, but what was new was that by a push of a button, it could wipe out an entire city or even an entire country because of nuclear weapons or right. you know, other stuff. And it seems to me maybe that was a psychological way to deal with it. Uh, like we had to deal with it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, I would prefer that we don't have to deal with that at all, but right. it right. does make sense that since it's so new, this would be kind of attractive because we feel so insignificant. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking of Isaiah that we would turn to dust in a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it's interesting because that possibility hasn't gone away. The world could still end right. any second because now more people have nukes, <laughs> you know, but um, maybe we've just become numb to it or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, I think that's got to be part of it. But the other thing I was thinking about is it's a very um, understandable, even logical uh, end of that theological approach to the Bible, right? So Mm, the Bible starts with the beginning and why wouldn't it end with the end? Yeah. Um, the Bible is a narrative. Remember, these Pentecostals are narrative people, right? right? To the extent that we're still in that same narrative that started at, at the Garden of Eden, <laughs> you know, and even to the point where we will be part of the narrative, even up to the final battle uh, against and victory over evil. So, like, huh. it's it's not like it makes sense that this would be that this would be the outcome of that approach to the scriptures. Um, it's, it's theologically and logically consistent. Um, yeah. Whether it's right or not is kind of immaterial to this because it, it makes sense. Like if you view the scriptures in that way, it's kind of natural that you might go here with that understanding. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously because we're talking about this, uh, anyone listening will know that, um, we're not just going to end there. Um, you have had a change of uh, experiences of life. And um, since this is part of your theology, uh, you know, usually we ask where do the craps, cracks start to show, but maybe we could just start talking about um, what was challenging to you about this as you started to see things in a bit different way. Yeah. And for anyone who's listening, thanks for sticking with us till we got here. <laughs> I hope it was interesting. Um, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, I think the challenges of this were really, I think there's two parts for me. One, on a personal level, this was deeply traumatic. You know, um, I lived in constant fear of missing the rapture, being left behind um, to eventually be tortured by the Antichrist. And more than that, I said, I remember being afraid of, but what if I end up taking the mark of the beast because I'm too weak to refuse or because I'm not strong enough to be a martyr at the end? And then it's not just that I've missed the rapture, but that I am doomed forever to burn Mm. for eternity, you know? Um, Like I could never decide if I actually wanted the, in fact, I know I will say I didn't want the rapture to happen during my lifetime because I could, I was never convinced that, um, I was going to be okay because like people would even talk about uh, this phrase, like, uh, are you ready kind of thing? Cause you never know when it's going to happen. Don't be like those five virgins that didn't have their lamps ready kind of stuff. Um, and I remember seeing, you know, like that, that horrible little skit I talked about, which was probably horribly corny and terrible, but it wasn't probably. when I was nine or whatever age I was 10, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, seeing those horrible movies and videos and like, it just kind of um, 
took something that they said was supposed to be encouraging, right? The return of Christ, <laughs> whether Jesus raptures us or not, the return of Christ is a good thing, <laughs> right? That is something <laughs> that we should be looking forward to. This is yeah. like, great. And I was more afraid of it than anything else. You know, I hoped it didn't happen, um, which is deeply problematic that, uh, and I don't mean this, I don't feel shame about it anymore. I don't mean that, but I mean, it's deeply problematic when a Christian doesn't want Jesus to return. Right. So we've heard your story a lot, Ryan, and fear is a constant that comes up um, in your story. Is this the root of the fear for you? This is not the root of the fear, but this is one of the roots of the fear. I think that as roots tend to be, it's tangled up with some other things, but I think it's certainly one of the big ones for sure. Okay. Yeah. Is it all stuff around, like, is it all interrelated stuff? So like hell and salvation and guilt, is it all interrelated stuff like that? I think at, yeah, I think so is, you know, rapture, hell, uh, damnation. Um, there's even a sense of like, talk about, loneliness to its ultimate conclusion right mm. separated from god and all the people you love for eternity not to mention the fire <laughs> yeah um like so yeah it would be overly reductionistic to say that this is the root of my struggles with fear but it is certainly a big part of it for sure so what was the other problem that because you mentioned that was the first one it was more internal and dealing with fear what was the second problem that you started to notice and you know this this second one was one i think i've been able to put together and still am like even now like i don't know that i could have articulated this when i was younger but i think what this kind of theology did for many people um is that it created this kind of, I'm going to call it a throwaway mentality in terms of the planet itself, right? So there wasn't a lot of emphasis on taking care of the environment because, well, it's all going to burn anyway, and Jesus is going to make a new one. I don't remember anyone ever saying that to me explicitly, but there's certainly that idea, especially when you combine it with the fact that as we've gone on in history, a lot of these people don't really believe in a lot of the you know climate change and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's this like uncaring and maybe even callous approach to to the world, to the planet, to the earth, because well, it's just where we are, but it's not the ultimate destination, and it's all going to be created again anyway. Um, and I think that has led to some pretty deep problems in terms of, you know, well, I mean, look at the earth; <laughs> we're in bad shape these days. Um, but more than that, maybe. Or in addition to that, I think it also, and this is going to sound harsh, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. I think it kind of created a sort of throwaway mentality for people's um, physical well-being on earth. And what I mean by that is the focus was we got to get people saved. We got to preach the gospel in the whole world. We got to let them come to know Jesus so that if they die before the rapture, they can go to heaven. And if it happens, they get to go with. And, you know, more than that, it was like this idea that the gospel is good for people, right? Um, but we're so focused on that that we aren't as concerned with um, other kinds of social ills, social problems, um, basic needs of human beings, such as food, shelter, um, you know, fair work, uh, those kinds of things. And 
I've been reading about this stuff and there's a lot of reasons for that. And it wasn't, it wasn't intended to be a callous thing. I think it was this idea that like, if we preach the gospel and people become Christians as Christians, they will correct those societal ills. It will just happen naturally. Right. So Hmm. if a factory owner is abusing their workers and paying them two cents a day and making them work in unsafe conditions, if they were Christian, they would not do that. Right. Things would get better. And that's maybe overly simplistic, but I think that kind of understanding is in there as well. And, you know, look around you. Clearly that has not worked. Okay. Um, It's hard to look at the world now and say that the emphasis on just preaching the gospel has fed all of the hungry people. And I mean, in a physical sense, not spiritually, right? Um, There are still children all around the world who don't have enough to eat, who work in unsafe conditions, who, you know, whatever it is. And um, so I think the biggest problem outside of my own, outside of the own deeply traumatic things it did to me personally, is that I really think it contributed to a, for some it was callous and for some it was ignorant, um, I think. But this total, not well, this generally general lack of attention to the everyday, normal, natural needs of a human being. Now, there's been some effort to change that in the last few years, in the last 10, 15 years or so, because I think people, I'm not the, certainly far from the first person to recognize that. Um, and there's a lot of history about, you know, how the, in terms of how evangelicalism came to be a thing and liberal Christianity and all of that. But the point is that um, that was deeply problematic in the effects that it had. If, because like, I mean, even Jesus said, you got to take care of the poor, right? Yeah. Uh, Jesus said, you got to feed the widows and the orphans and et cetera. Well, and, and I, I'm hearing this. I want to just throw this out because I think, I think that that's actually your primary thing. Like if the way I'm hearing it is let's call it the casual throwaway, even though it's, you know, that's simplistic, but for the purposes of discussing it. That was the effect, even if it wasn't the intent. Yeah. Um, you don't have to go to world issues for that to be the case. You can go back to your initial conversation of how or explanation of how that was internal. They had a casual throwaway in the theology. I can't say about personally, but I'm sure it happened personally too. a casual throwaway of your emotional state when you're hearing about rapture, like doing a, a Sunday school activity on the rapture that way clearly doesn't understand what kids are going to go through, you know? Well, it's more important that they be in a right spiritual state, right? The, the right. important thing is that they are right with God and that they are safe eternally. <laughs> so and if so you've got to you scare have, them to do it, it's okay. Yeah, you can have a casual throwaway because as long as they do that, who cares about their mental well-being, their physical well-being, whatever it might be? Well, yeah, I think most people that's a little too far, but it, it's that over everything else, the most important thing is the eternal peace. And so whatever you got to do to make sure your kids are okay for that, well, that's what matters. And, you know, they're, you know, this, this group of Christianity and, and 
it's not like it's unique to them, but it's never been afraid to use uh, fear to discipline and um, uh, get people to do what they want. And that sounds sinister, and I don't know that it always was, but I'm just saying like it it was the important part was the eternal destination. It didn't matter how you got them there. Well, that's important because they might not intentionally have a disregard for people. And I'm, I'm very, I'm moving away from intention altogether because I think it's a useless conversation. You can't determine anyone's intentions. That's getting inside their brain and you don't know what it is unless they exactly tell you. And then you're like, okay, well, I can judge your intentions then. But you know, we've talked about this, I think, in one of our previous podcasts, if not just between you and me, is like, what kind of thing are you doing when you're trying to convert someone based out of fear? All you're trying, what kind of God are you communicating? That was what we usually talk about. But I mean, it kind of, it really does smell like manipulation. Maybe not m- intentional manipulation, like, oh, I'm going to manipulate someone to be afraid of God. So that, but that's the effect, right? You, you, you communicate what you should be afraid of, which is eternal hell and damnation, the rapture, all that kind of stuff. And so the way you prevent all that is you come on the side that wins the battle in the end of the game. Right. And, and yeah. And I think, I think for most, I don't know. I think manipulation does kind of require an intent that may or may not have been there for most. But I think the idea, like, remember, this is a long heritage from Jonathan Edwards on of, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think I wonder, let's say it that way. I wonder if the same kind of fear I experienced wasn't unique to me. I mean, I know it wasn't, but that the effect it had on the movement as a whole was that like even the, the leaders and stuff who did this was because it was their own fear of this kind of thing. That's probably overly uh, simplistic in a way, but all I mean is like, I think that most people, if you believe this, well, I mean, you're going to do whatever it takes to have people avoid that. Aren't you mm. like in that sense, like, <laughs> the intent may have been good. I know we're not, but I'm just saying like, what I'm trying to say is that I think it was maybe, maybe we need to be a little more charitable in the sense that I don't think for most people outside of the ones who used it to try and sell people shit. Right. (laughs) Um, Because those people were certainly manipulating. They were con men playing off fear. Sure. But I think like the average pastor and even people like, uh, I don't know, I don't know if Billy Graham talked about this or not, but that kind of person, Uh I think they genuinely thought that they were helping people. Yeah. Well, it could be uh, like the byproduct of a system, right? You teach this uh, system of theology and the byproduct is that people resonate more with the fear than they do with the grace or the goodness of God. Right. And I think you're right that at the same time, it's hard to ignore the fact that this did keep people in the church. <laughs> you know, um, this did give people a sense of security, which led to a sense of identity, which, you know, perpetuated the uh, the church's identity and, and place in society and all those things. Like, whether intentional or not, I think that was probably part of it. What's really interesting to me, so we started this because we said that this was an area that you 
had experience that I have not, but I can tell you very clearly that I experienced the same kind of throwaway stuff. Like for us, church, like just take church. We've had tons of conversations about this on this podcast, but just take the experience of church. It is meant by conservative Lutherans just to communicate the justification of God, the sinner or the sinfulness of the sinner and the redemption given after such justification of that sinner. And there is very little attention given to much else. Right. Everything else is like, it's either fits in the category of sinner, which most things do in this world, or it's justification. Usually that's like, uh, we love stories that do that. So there was a lot... Um, you know, I'm dating myself, but when The Matrix came out, there was a lot of talk about Neo being the Christ figure, and I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm really dubious to that right now, but, uh, you know, we like justification language like that, where a man stands in for the rest of humanity or whatever, uh, and we've even gone so far to say that sanctification is just a continuation of justification because we're really upset or upset's the wrong word. We're really uncomfortable with uh, redemption and restoration knowledge because that's what those Calvinists do. So we like to stay really within justification. And if your emotions or whatever help that narrative or help that <laughs> narrative is not us, but help that uh, logic, then we narratives. will incorporate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I we know, all, but we don't, we, we don't yeah. think in terms of narratives. I mean, you just described a narrative of justification, but yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And so it's really interesting because we do have that just, it's in a different place. And I think that I really resonate, especially because you were one of those, or at least dimensions of you parts of you were part of that throwaway that was been done that had been done because they they cared more about you surviving to be raptured than to be holistic and again that wasn't intentional but by paying attention or at least for me the way i see it is the care was more about making sure day in and day out that you had that saving faith instead of how are you doing Ryan how are you doing with this you know right i mean terrible idea or for example right like i don't have children but i imagine if i did and i believed in this stuff i would want to make sure that they were not in danger of it right right i mean i would want that for my friends and whoever if i believed in it yeah. so like it's not in that sense it's not a sinister thing i don't no you know but and it's not like your parents or loved ones didn't love you. I'm not saying no, that either. No, but I do think that the spiritual leaders in our lives, whether that was our parents or our pastors or whoever it was, should have been able to tell that this was having some pretty diff, uh, problematic effects on us. Because like I said, I am far from the only person. I mean, it looks a little different for some people, but I am far from the only person who internalized this kind of fear. And my stories about rapture scares are almost cliche in this world because we all had them, you know? Huh. So like, um, like, yeah, that's the part where I think they fell down is not in the belief itself because that's what they were taught and it probably helped them maybe in a way it didn't uh, help us exactly. But like, uh, how, how did they not notice what was going on? The effects of it, 
you know, yeah. even if they didn't know what to do about it. Um, yeah, but that's maybe a separate topic, but, but, um, yeah. Out of curiosity, when did these complications start to become aware to you? I know you had the feeling like the rapture scares and all the confusion and the worry, but when could you start to articulate that? And when did it become more important for you in your life? Like timeline wise? Yeah. Um, I think it's been within the last five, six years or so. I think it's honestly been because it was such a big part of my, I mean, it's not the only thing, but it, it turns out it was a big part of my theological formation, upbringing, understanding, you know. I think that it's been in the last few years that as I've been kind of on this journey we're talking about on this podcast, I think this is one of the things that I've looked at again and said, um, I don't know exactly what I believe about all this, but it, as I've described it today, and as I was taught, doesn't work for me, not not in its entirety, you know, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about my uh, struggles with fear all the time, and I've been really working on um, really the things I've been the most afraid of. I've been trying to look at those and say, okay, God, like, what's really like, what's where should I go with this from here? Because I'm convinced that fear is not the primary way God works anymore, you know. Um, so <laughs> I think it's, that. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, I'm still have a hard time with that, but that's been kind of my goal, my theme, my uh, the way I've been a big part of how I've been walking this journey that we're on um, is those are the things that I've been trying to reexamine and and ask God, like, okay, so what do I do with it? And like. I like just as an example, you didn't ask this part, but um, like even with all the problems we brought up, I'm not sure I'm ready to jettison all of this understanding out the window. You know, I I do tend to think a lot less of it's going to be literally true than I used to, um, because I do think a lot of the focus on that kind of misses the the point that's really important that Jesus is returning. You know, um, okay. whether whether Jesus comes back with a rapture or not, you know. Oh, well, but like at the same time, I, I do still think there is at least somewhat of a future dimension to what happens in Revelation, you know, even if I don't expect there to be bowls of wrath poured out on the planet or whatever. Um, what would that be? I, don't even, I mean, like, if you read that, I mean, that shit's wild. What's going on there? I mean, like, <laughs> ha- like there's an angel that slays half the people on the earth and, I, you know, there's mountains falling into the sea. And I mean, like, wow. it's just. It's like buckle your seatbelts. This is like Armageddon on steroids kind of stuff. Nightmare fuel. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just the fact that those things happen multiple times kind of tell you it can't probably be literal. But, um, you know, you know, that angel's going to be awfully busy. But anyway. um, (laughs) He's trading his whole life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's got a really big, uh, what's that called, that they thresh wheat with? Um, Sickle. Scythe. Yeah, whatever. He's got a real big one of those, whatever they are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like, I, I don't know that I want to throw it all away, but I've been trying to figure out like, besides the fact that I still believe Christ is returning, is there any of this that is actually helpful? And, you know, how do how do I take that urgency I talked about in terms of preaching the gospel and use that in a good way? And not one that's based on fear, or and certainly not one that creates a kind of throwaway um, perspective 
about people and the world. Um, like those are the kind of things I'm trying to, to work through because, you know, there is something good in that urgency. There is something good in the hope of Christ returning. There is, there is something good in this idea that even in tribulation of that scale, God still takes care of God's people. Um, you know, like those are all things I wouldn't want to be without, but the, the rest of it, I've been having to, uh, the whole barnacles on a ship thing, you know, yeah, yeah. that's really what it feels like of where's the ship under here, under all these barnacles. Let me ask a pretty direct question based off of that. Can there be urgency without the end times the way you've been taught it? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think so. I think, but I think it requires a different focus. Like, and I'm not saying nobody does this, but what if instead of urgently spreading the gospel so that Jesus would come back. <laughs> what if we um, we met people's physical needs and spread the gospel because it helps them, because Jesus told us to do that and let the end be the end, whatever, and whenever that happens. Like, you know, like, could we let compassion for the other person create urgency instead of our yearning for the end of all things. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I don't well, know. I, I mean, come on. I love that. Right. I mean, yeah. you know that I love that because, and I'm not, I've been, I've been refraining because I wanted to hear the story and this is not passing judgment. It's just how I've heard it. Um, what I've heard is not unique to you into your, your tradition. It's in ours, but it's come up several times. It, it, it feels very selfish in terms of the self-directed way, not the um, no, greedy and I want this. But <clears throat> the goal would be to make end times happen because I don't want this world to continue in this way. Right. Yeah, for sure. There is a selfish quality to that. And you're turning it, it sounds like, at least in answering that initial question, of maybe the urgency can be other-centered rather than self-centered. Right. And, you know, if that brings about the end, well and good. <laughs> but yeah. regardless, like, people need us now. And, you know, I think, again, while I'm not the only one who's realized that or who does that or who takes that approach, I think it's been largely lacking. And that seems so counterintuitive or or crazy to me, given that wasn't what Jesus did when he was here, you know, um, yeah. you know, they said, come on, you're going to build the kingdom now. Right. And he's like, well, my kingdom's not of the world <laughs> yeah. over and over again. Are you going to throw out the Romans? No, my kingdom's not of the world. Right. Like, yeah. um, I think we've, we've missed maybe, maybe we've taken Jesus's words literally and missed the spirit of what he was saying there. I know, shock, right? Um, like, you know, he said the end will come when everyone is heard, but I don't think that that means so let's throw away all their needs just so they hear the words. Yeah. You know? I'm going to ask kind of a subversive question because I can't help myself. Mm -hmm. um, I know how people are, at least how the people I work with and I minister to um I suspect that 
while theologically there might be an urgency, practically there's probably not. In other words, I think theologically there might be uh, a way that, you know, through the fear and through that, that we have to hurry, we have to do this, we have to make the end come. And within the gathering, there's probably that too, including offerings for missions elsewhere to, you know, empower people who are making this happen. Is it is it practically urgent for Joe Pewsitter or Jane Pewsitter? Is is what practically urgent? The urgent, it, the coming of uh, bringing about the end times. Oh. oh, um, you know, I don't know if that that is there today in the same respect. I don't, I don't think it. I mean, it depends on where you are. Um, okay. But like in my experience, this did lessen, right? This emphasis, this. Um, uh, focus on the end times and such like at the last church I was at in this world I was there for seven eight years I don't think we talked about this stuff once okay you know um, it, it became so central to me because it was such a big deal when I was forming um, in terms of personally theologically spiritually you know it was such a big deal then that it became a big deal for me um, so is that urgency there now about the end for the average person in these kinds of churches? Depends on the church. I suspect not in the same way as it was 30, 40 years ago, though. Maybe I can ask the question a little bit differently, because that is a good response, but I, not quite what I was aiming at, and it's my fault because of the communication. Uh, let me say it like this. Did the urgency actually create action that brought about the end times by, you know, preaching the gospel or whatever, or did it pretty much create this anxiety and talking points within your tradition? I'm going to say a qualified yes to both. And what I mean by that is um, clearly it didn't bring about the end as they understand it. Because <laughs> right, we're all yeah, still we're here. Still... Armageddon didn't happen yet. Um, well, unless it was this year. Anyway, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> So it didn't do that, but it did create whole organizations that keep track of every people group in the world, and they keep track of, is there a Bible in their language? Has a missionary been there to preach the gospel? Okay. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Like there is, that urgency does still exist in the, especially in the missionary um, arm of this movement, which okay. is a huge part of this kind of faith. Um, but... What was the second part of the question? I, what was did it just create fear and talking oh. points? But yes, it did definitely create fear. You know, um, I really think it was kind of, kind of both for most people. Okay. Because I often wonder, and this is just a, a question out there. I wonder how much, how much fear actually motivates action. Um, I don't know. I don't know. In my experience, people who are afraid typically, not always, but typically have one or two reactions. They either get paralyzed or they get angry. Um, and sometimes I guess you could fuel that. And sometimes it's not to mutually exclusive. Of course, there are going to be some things that occur because we want to reduce that fear. We want to channel it so that we don't feel that way, you know, and that's I would suspect where leaders come into play um, because they want to, you know, help people and reduce their fear by saying, hey, I'm doing something for this. 
But it's just a bigger question I'm curious about. Uh, yeah. Does fear actually produce action? And this might be one of those places where an exploration around that could prove useful. I mean, I think the answer is yes, it does for some people. Um, it did for some people. Okay. For some, I think it was more of the paralyzed. Like for me, it was more of the paralyzed. Uh, you know, if it's fight, flight, or freeze, mine was definitely more of the freeze reaction. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know how flight applies, but you, you know, um, I think it depends on the person and the context they're in. You know, if they're in a church that has resources to enable people to do this kind of stuff easily and quickly, it probably is more likely to enable action than a 20 person church in the middle of wherever, you know what I mean? Yeah. That may not know how to do much about it. So probably. Yeah. Especially if they do have a mission wing, that makes a lot of sense because Mm -hmm. you can create the fear uh, unintentionally, sure, but still create the fear and then say, you know, unintentionally, not as directly, but hey, you want to manage that fear, go over there and give money there, give service, help out, right. whatever it is. Right. You may not be able to ever go anywhere in Eurasia, but you can sure give some money to the missionaries. And that sounds more sinister than it's usually intended. Um, but yeah. Yeah, because usually it's around the gospel and we're talking about like threads that are connected that we're now seeing or you're now seeing rather than intentionally people aren't intentionally saying hey you're afraid go do this no it's like we instill that fear somehow and then at the same time we're preaching the gospel and so it comes from a good place it's just we got to call out these things so that we're thinking about them and not doing everything on autopilot especially theologically right yeah i think that's that's probably a like for fear is not the not the goal for most. I mean, well, some people. I, no, that's not true. I think some people do use fear as a motivator, yeah. but not everybody. I think for some, fear is probably the byproduct, but not necessarily the intent. And for some, it is the intent, like we yeah. talked about. So, so let me ask yeah. you this real quick. Um, I guess this is a two part question. Did you express this fear directly to people at any time? either in your childhood or now. I suspect I know the answer for the former. Um, and if you have, what has been the response? I think I, I think like, I think my parents knew about, like, I think I told them about some of these things. I mean, it didn't take a genius to figure out why I was calling them in the middle of the day, multiple times in a week, you know, okay. especially, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, I think, now I'm much more open, I mean, obviously, to talk about it because I've been able to process a lot of what was going on in ways that I wasn't able to as a child and a teenager. Um, I think trying to remember what the response was. I mean, I, I'm sure with my parents, the response was always one of reassurance of like assuring me that I would be OK and that like, you know, if I'm worried about it, if I'm worried about missing the rapture, I'm probably not gonna kind of thing, (laughs) you know? Um, And not to mention the fact that you'll probably know when it happens, if it happens as they say it will happen. (laughs) But, um, and I remember, I think, I don't remember the details, but I, I think my dad did a sermon series once on revelation. And the whole point was he called it the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that's what it, it's actually called right john's revelation of christ and he focused on where you see jesus in revelation and what jesus is doing because it's supposed to be something encouraging you know 
And like, he was never one to pull out the charts and graphs and stuff, thankfully. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think I generally got some reassurance when I expressed this stuff, although I didn't that often, especially as I got older. Um, but I think it kind of fits with the other things of like, I didn't know it then, but like the reassurance didn't fit within the theology that I was taught because, Mm. or the way, or the actions of people in that system, um, intentionally or not, you know, of like, well, I'm not the only one who's afraid of this. And, you know, you tell me we're going to be okay. And Jesus is going to take care of us. But what about all the other people? Like, is that, that seems bad, you know, even for God to do that seems bad. So, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I never would have said that then, but you know, um, I'm not sure I have a lot of place for punitive miracles in my theology, you know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, yeah. So like, I don't know. Did that answer the question? Yeah. Cause I suspect. So here's the thing. Here's the reason why I answered that question. As I said, I'm not really into intentions, but I'm into impact and how do you respond to the impact? So there's lots of things I don't intend to do and I hurt people, right? Right. There's nothing we can do this side of heaven to stop that. Mm -hmm. Um, We will always hurt people even with the best of intentions. What matters is even within our theology, when we recognize that there's pain, how do we respond to that? Right. And fear is an expression of pain, right? It might might be something different, but it at least causes pain. It was in this case, for sure. Um, so I'm always looking out for ways in which we combat the systems that hurt us mm-hmm. and uh, the the other side of the coin when it comes to our beliefs. So the belief of a... Uh, rapture, tribulation, and judgment, all of that has a side to it where I think most people will recognize it creates fear because mm-hmm. um, it's pretty obvious that it would create fear, I think. I mean, you're talking about concentration camps and beheadings and yeah. demons and lakes of fire. Pretty so scary yeah, stuff. I think so, yeah. So how was that built into the system? Was it built into the system of theology? Is that where God's grace came out? Or maybe it wasn't felt as much to you now, and, and I'm kind of like pushing towards a filling out of your answer of where you might be now. Maybe that's where you are now, um, at least recognizing that. I know we're not. you, you haven't really come to a place where you know where all that is, you're not throwing out the window right now, but it does sound like you're doing some work on the dark side of that, if you will, the side that is ignored, the side that hasn't been paid attention to very much, at least by expressing your experiences and your emotions around this. But it does seem like it's going a little bit further, like you're trying to do some active positive work on the places where this theology falls through yeah i think you know i often talk about on this podcast about how you can have whatever theology you want but you have to consider the practical effects it has on people and people's lives you can't just say you don't we don't believe anything in a vacuum you know whatever we believe is going to affect us and our lives and the lives of people who believe the same thing 
And I think this is a good example of one that, like you said, regardless of intention, look at the effects that it had, at least on some of us. And mm-hmm. so then that should prompt um, maybe repentance. But more than that, I, I'm more interested in like, so what do we do with it from here? How, like, like I said, is there still stuff we need to keep? And um, what are the effects of that? Like, I just, I really think that theology needs to be more practical than we think it is because, or let me say it this way, I think it is a lot more practical than we think it is. You know, even for you folks who think it's all in your mind, that's not fair. But <laughs> even for people who take theological propositions as the the central thing, like those propositions affect how you live your lives, yeah. right? Um, in some ways good and in some ways really bad ways. And I, I'm sure I'm not the first person. I mean, it's not like I'm inventing practical theology here, but I think in my, where I came from, you know, this, this theological world and maybe a lot of evangelical Christianity in America in general, um, it's not enough to think about the principles and, and it's not enough to just teach what you believe. You really have to look at what you believe like what it does, you know, because if, if it is something we believe about God, should it be hurting people? Mm. I think the answer is no, you know? Um, okay. I'll say the answer is no, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, so, I mean, I think it's a good example of that. It's something that has really prompted me to go in that direction. Like I said, this is a big part of the journey I'm on now is like, okay, I know all, I know a lot about theology at this point. I don't know it all. I'm just saying, I know a lot about it. I know the principles and I understand some of the context and history and all that. But in a sense, that's like, I mean, no, that's not enough on its own. Because like I said, what do we do with what we believe? Mm. And I think that has been, at least from this subject and some others, it's, I think that's been uh, largely absent from the discussion. You know, what really struck out, stuck out to me is you just cogently explained why every other department in theological schools hate the practical department. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Because every other place is like exegetical. No, you just got to understand the original languages, the text, the grammar, all that kind of stuff. Historical. No, you got to understand how these things developed and where they came from. And systematic is, no, you got to know the propositions and all that. And practical is like, yeah, but how's that helping people? How's that? Yeah, like all of that is important, right? Because, I mean, it all exists. Well, most of it. But um, but if it never, like, even if they say they don't, everyone, like I said, it all affects how people live, whether they yeah. realize or admit it or not. You know, if you think that meaning from a text only comes from grammar, well, that's going to affect how you uh, not only read the text, but what you do with it. Yeah. You know, just as an example. Um, so... I think it's because human beings are holistic creatures. We don't actually exist in the compartments we think we do, um, or at least not entirely. And so I don't know why we would expect our theology to be different. I love it. Well, so that has been a... (laughs) 
pretty detailed explanation of some of the stuff I dealt with about this subject. And um, I hope it was helpful to somebody. I, I know I'm not the only one who had to deal with this kind of stuff, but even if you didn't, maybe you can extrapolate it for some of the stuff you've dealt with too. Um, thanks for thanks for listening with us. Thanks for um, being on this journey with us. You know, we're all doing this kind of thing, even if it's about different topics or different stuff. And I would just like to encourage you as we close today that, like we always say, it's okay not to know, but not just that, but that, you know, not only are we with you on this journey, but but God's on the journey with you too. And that's that's what we want, even though it feels kind of scary sometimes. So if you uh, if you have anything for us, any questions or stories you'd like to share or suggestions about the podcast or things you'd like to see or hear us talk about or anything like that, um, we'd love it if you e- email us at our email address, which is FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'd like to hear from you. So thanks again for listening. It's okay not to know. And remember, you're not alone either.